Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN, and you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and our website is LGGPodcast.com. We are still uh, rolling out the content in this separated format where I'm at home and Kirk is at home and uh, ne'er the twain shall meet, it seems. We've been trying to get together and do an episode together, but it's just been difficult. The, the COVID hasn't been too bad here in St. Louis, but it's starting to really ramp up. So um, we're trying to be really cautious and careful about that as we uh, go about our business. So um, no, no imminent plans for a podcast together, although... Um, Kirk's going to get a microphone, and uh, we may be looking at doing something like that in the not-too-distant future and trying some different technology. So if you have any suggestions for a podcasting software that might work, let us know. We did try Anchor, but my phone was behaving weird for it. Kirk's was fine, but I I sounded weird, and uh, we just didn't like the quality, so we did not go with that. Uh, And I've also got a new microphone myself uh, this past weekend. It's still uh, August 3rd as I'm recording this. This past weekend, uh, my wife and I went up to help our son move into his new apartment in college, and uh, while we were helping him do that, he gave me his old microphone, which is actually way nicer than my old microphone, because my son actually uh, produces some uh, music now and then, and uh, he had a microphone for recording his uh, his vocals. So that is now my microphone, and if the quality here is much better, you can thank him for that. I uh, also wanted to give a quick shout-out to our listeners. You know, Kirk and I, me, me more so than Kirk, because I have all the accounts, uh, logins, uh, but I kind of keep an eye on where we have listeners, where they're from, uh, what the numbers are. Y'all been going crazy the last week or two. Um, our listenership had kind of tapered off when COVID hit because I think people in cars weren't listening as much. Uh, but over the last two, three weeks, it's really skyrocketed. And from some, some new places, we've always had a good following from uh, Texas, from New York and New Jersey, a shockingly large number of people in Mountain View, California. So I don't know if there's some big business there or something that employs lots of people who might be interested in this podcast, but Mountain View, California, I see you. What's up? And then we also uh, have always had a decent international following, but recently we're seeing it tick up also in Europe, India, Russia, Singapore, the UK, Ireland, uh, Spain, and Hong Kong. So welcome, everybody. Um, oh, uh, Clinton, Mississippi. There must be like one listener in Clinton, Mississippi, who has recently downloaded every episode. Maybe that's why our numbers went up this week. But uh, whoever's in Clinton, Mississippi, um, hi, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And a special shout out to our one listener in Wheaton, Illinois, a home of, of legendary Iowa Hawkeye quarterback uh, Chuck Long. So hi, hi, Wheaton. Okay, today I'm going to talk about uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. This is actually the third podcast in the series I wanted to do about uh, music law. I've been kind of uh, slow playing these because music law is a bit off the beaten path for us. I find it to be a very geeky topic, you know, band nerds, that stereotype. But we've gotten pretty good feedback on these episodes, so I feel like uh, there might be some interest out there amongst our listeners. If not, let me know. You won't hurt my feelings. We want to do things that you want to listen to. But uh, this one is about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which isn't really about music specifically, but it definitely applies uh, to music, and music is one of the areas where this law is particularly important because of just how uh, complicated and, and dense the thicket of music copyright law is. 
So DMCA, 1998 law that that we, you know, the United States passed uh, to implement a couple of treaty requirements that we'd signed on to, and it's really two different laws mashed into one. Uh, the first part of it is what's called the anti-circumvention portion. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that piece. Um, it's, I think, less controversial and less in the public eye right now. Uh, the more controversial aspect of it is the the what's called the ISP safe harbor provisions. And this was uh, basically an expedited copyright enforcement mechanism that allows um, a, a copyright owner, uh, like a songwriter or a music studio, uh, to have a fast, cheap, easy procedure to have infringing materials removed uh, online. Basically, they send a takedown. You know, if, if, if a movie studio or a songwriter or a music label finds their materials online being hosted somewhere, say YouTube, uh, they can send YouTube, the ISP, uh, a takedown notice saying, hey, here's the URL to this content. Uh, this is ours, and I want you to take it offline. And then YouTube uh, has to inform the person who posted it. They don't have to tell the ISP who it is right away, but they do have to inform the person who posted it that it's going to be taken down. And that person can either contest it and say, no, I have the right to post this, uh, in which case uh, the ISP puts the content back up and the ISP is immune to any kind of copyright infringement lawsuit uh, under the safe harbor provision. They've, they've done what they have to do, and they can turn over the user information, and then the copyright holder has a very short window to file an infringement lawsuit against the poster. Uh, or the poster can do nothing, in which case the takedown just stays taken down, and once again the ISP is immune to any um, liability or, or lawsuit for hosting the infringing materials. So that's, that's all. It seems very straightforward, and on its surface, it doesn't really seem that controversial, but, but it's become that way just because of how the internet has evolved. Uh, and so, you know, to get into the, to understand the reasons why, I thought I'd give you a, a quick, you know, a couple minutes on, on the background of, of copyright online. You know, copyright, as Kirk and I often say, is fundamentally about making copies. And if you look at, uh, just Google it, you know, it's, and it will list what the rights are. And, and they're pretty straightforward. Uh, the copyright holder alone has the right to make copies, has the right to prepare derivative works based on the work, has the exclusive right to distribute copies to the public, and then there's other rights that go with specific types of work. So it's, it's really about copying. So, but this, you know, these rules are all based on the invention of the printing press. We didn't really need copyrights until we had printing presses. You know, the fundamental theory behind the copyright has largely not changed in 300 years. When we import these principles online, um, some of the underlying assumptions that I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect went into the design of this institution uh, fell away. One of which is that there is an energy barrier to copywriting, although the printing press or now you know, mo modern printing presses have made it cheaper, faster, and easier than ever to copy. It's still not free. It still requires materials that are not free. It still takes time. And there still is one physical copy you produce that then must be physically transported to somebody else. Uh, all those assumptions provided a sort of economic or, or practical check on the amount of copyright infringement anybody was willing to do. 
Those of you who grew up in the era of tape decks, you know, we'd record uh, copies of songs off the radio onto a cassette tape. You had to sit there sometimes for hours waiting for the song to come on. The stupid DJ always talked over it. Uh, and then if you made copies for your friends, you know, you had to sit there and play the song while you recorded the copy of it at the same time. You didn't just click a button and have an instant copy. So there was only so much of that you were willing to do for your freeloading friends because you're not going to sit there all night making copies for everybody. The internet changed that and made it so that the, the social norms uh, and the, the energy barriers that provided a practical check on, on copying of this nature uh, were gone and it was possible to get copies from people you didn't know without them expending any effort. And with that barrier lifted, all that remained was voluntary legal compliance, uh, which was virtually non-existent because the people who were on the internet at the time were poor college students who were more than happy to download thousands and thousands of dollars worth of music for free. It sounded great. Um, so how does copyright work online? You know, how does you know the, the concept of a copy also assumes those physical copies. What do you do in a situation where somebody is, okay, so I buy a CD and then I rip a copy to my computer. Well, I've made a copy, so that violates 17 U.S.C. 106 paragraph 1, the exclusive right to make copies. I made another copy. Arguably, there's a fair use right to do that. I would argue there would. So, you know, that copy is, you know, technically a violation, but there might be an affirmative defense there of fair use. Okay, so then I upload that copy to Napster. Well, now I've made a second copy by putting it on Napster. Let's say I upload a copy to, uh, let's, go, let's go back in time. Let's say I upload to an FTP site. It's 1994 now. So now I've made a second copy on that FTP site. Who's the infringer there? Is it me or is it the FTP site? I don't have that copy. Somebody else does. You know, that's a different situation. Now I'm actually costing somebody some money, whereas with uh, me making my own personal copy, I'm, I'm not. I wasn't going to buy a second copy for my computer. Uh, so nobody lost anything there. But once I put the copy out there, uh, maybe I have lost something. But so, you know, for an, for an online platform, the FTP site is now hosting an, an infringing copy. They didn't buy that copy. I didn't pay for that copy. And then the question is, can they be held responsible for having it there? And sort of the old world rule was that a distributor of content was basically viewed as a publisher. Publishers were viewed as having an editorial role and having a special place in the distribution channel of copyrighted works. And so publishers were held liable if they published infringing works by others. And it was between the publisher and the person who provided the content to figure that out. If the you know for the publisher to go back to the author they got it from. Well, the situation is different with an online platform. You all of a sudden have anonymous publishers where anything can be published and they don't necessarily know what it is. It's not like a printing press where obviously the publisher has to read the material, decide to publish it, maybe do some due diligence on it. Uh, you know, in a, in a modern copyrighted uh, work, there's an extensive amount of diligence done, you know, for, for movies and things like that. I mean, every single second, every single frame has to be cleared. Uh, and the same with a copyrighted work. If you ever take a, a book or something and try and get it published, the publisher is going going to look at it and anything that's quoted or anything like that, they're going to want a source for. Any photos you give them, they're going to want to clear to make sure that it doesn't infringe anything. So the publisher has this responsibility before they publish anything because they can be held liable. But the online platform may not even know that anybody's there. They don't, you know, they, they know you logged in, but they're not, you know, if you've ever used the internet, you're not, nobody looks at everything that gets uploaded. That's always been the case, uh, except in maybe like very small local bulletin boards. But on the internet with an FTP site, 
website that has anonymous public logins, not only do you not know who's really uploading things, you're not going to look at most of it. You don't really care. Uh, and this was uh, also true with uh, with the music infringement. So you have this infringing copy. You have a publisher who's not forming an editorial role. They're not really reviewing anything. Uh, and, and early case law with regard to things like uh, defamation and things like that uh, held that if the if the platform is not actively doing any editor any editorial work any review work or doing any curating or moderating of its content then they'd have no idea what's there and they have no responsibility to police it however if they are doing that well then they are on notice and they should be policing it this is it incentivized online platforms to do as little moderation as possible uh, so the communications decency act was passed that basically said that for purposes of defamation an online platform has no liability for the things posted by its users and then the dmca sort of completed that circle by also providing a safe harbor for copyright infringement and those are really the, the major issues. You're not going to usually infringe a patent just by posting something, uh, nor, nor a trademark. So the two major sources of potential civil liability for an online platform, defamation uh, as a publisher and um, copyright infringement as a publisher, both of those, uh, they were given outs. And these two laws together basically paved the road for the internet to become uh, what it did in the United States. It wouldn't be the same without those things. That's not to say they've worked perfectly. There have been consequences, particularly for the DMCA. And that is why it is currently going through a series of legislative reviews uh, being held by the Senate Judiciary Committee to figure out uh, what to do with it. And the, the battle lines here are really breaking down about along the lines you'd expect. On the one side, you've got copyright holders who, you know, in 1998, trying to find your infringing materials wasn't too terribly difficult. You know, there might be one copy somewhere and you sent the URL to the ISP and they took it down and that was the end of it. Uh, but now, you know, with BitTorrent and things like that, the technology has responded very rapidly, and we have systems that are designed to make it impossible to get rid of all the copies. It, it sort of has fallen behind the technology, which has evolved around the, the legal rules to make copyright infringement and sharing uh, easier than ever uh, and, and impossible to police. So your copyright holders, you know, they, they can't even begin to keep track of all the copies of their stuff that are out there, and it seems like a hopeless task for them. They call it the whack-a-mole problem. Yeah, you take one down, but then 20 more pop up, right afterwards, what good does it do you? And then on the flip side, you've got the ISPs who are saying, well, and, and I should say the copyright holders want the ISPs to have a little more skin in the game. They want them to have at least some kind of affirmative obligation to to police their content and, and take action so that takedown notices are what they call stay down notices. Once you issue the takedown, it stays down and we don't just get more and more copies popping up again. On the flip side, of course, the ISPs ISPs don't want to do that. That's a burden. And the perspective of these two groups is really hard to reconcile. From the ISPs perspective, they get, you know, the big ISPs in particular, you just get millions and millions of takedown notices. Some of them are fraudulent. Some of them are abusing the DMCA provisions for other purposes. Some of them are just not compliant with the legal requirements. And there's already a massive burden for the large ISPs 
to um, to respond to all of these in order to qualify for the safe harbor. Uh, in response, the copyright holders, of course, say, look, I'm struggling to monetize what I have created. It's such a hopeless task now that people are, in fact, getting out. Uh, and you've got you know some musicians who are who are saying that it's, it's such a hassle and, and so hopeless that they're, they're, they just don't see the point of continuing to produce anything. They can't make a living. And, and there's a lot of people who are in that group that are, are not famous but could make a living off of their creative works but they they could if they had an effective remedy but they they just don't and so they're they're struggling and you know from their point of view you've got uh, ISPs uh, and by ISPs I should say we mean any online service provider which includes a platform like a Facebook like a YouTube from the artist perspective these platforms have made an enormous amount of money off of people posting basically infringing content and so the hearings that are going on at the Senate Judiciary Committee right now are fleshing out these issues, and uh, they're they're hearing from a lot of different people on both sides. I've I've listened to most of these hearings. Everybody basically has a fair point, and I'm I'm not really sure who to side with. To be honest, as an IP lawyer, my sympathies naturally lie with um, the the copyright holders, uh, and not just as an IP lawyer, but as a person who also is a writer. I write fiction. Uh, I write songs. I've always been a creative type, and so the idea that if I and I, and I write games too, I've made games and games software, and I uh, historically have been incredibly protective of my source code, although the last game I wrote, I open source. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to those viewpoints, and, you know, and I've never had to make a living off that stuff, though, so I've had the luxury of being able to give my work away, plus <laughs> quality's low, so there's no market demand for it anyhow. Uh, so there's, there's, I'm sympathetic to that, but, you know, I, I, again, I'm a programmer. I understand the complications of running a platform and the practical realities. So uh, I also sympathize to the platforms to some extent, although I, you know, it's my personal experience is that there's overreaching on both sides. I had... Uh, you know, so a good example, Don Henley from the Eagles was testifying, and uh, he was uh, complaining about how um, he has a staff of, I don't know, he said 80 people working full-time just to take down infringing Eagles music, not to monetize it, not to content ID it on YouTube, just to take it down. And I have uh, a private YouTube channel that's basically just me learning to play the guitar. I had tried to learn the Hotel California solo, which is a, a beautiful solo that... Um, I really like, and it, it got taken down. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a fair use. It's it's me just trying to learn a song. It's not like I'm, I'm costing, you know, Don any money or anything. It's got, like, two views, both of whom are probably just me. So, you know, th- that seemed like overreaching by the copyright holder in that case. But, you know, it's... it's it's Don's music. He can do what he wants. I guess. I just. I, I don't. I don't quite get that. That that approach. You know. And just along those lines, I see. I see takedowns and things. I. So we. My family went to uh, Estes Park, Colorado, last summer, and we stayed. Literally, we stayed at the YMCA. Uh, YMCA of the Rockies. And during breakfast, they played YMCA by the Village People, and the staff came out of the kitchen and they did the YMCA dance. Of course. Everybody got up and did the dance with them, and the kids loved it, and it was super fun. I got my phone out and filmed about 20 seconds of it. Now, the YMCA probably has a public performance license from ASCAP or BMI or whoever owns the public performance rights to that song. So they had the right to do that, and that's fine. But once I filmed it, I had done what's called a sync. I had created a, a motion picture, basically, the, the camera movie, 
and I had synchronized it to the music in the background. Although I hadn't done it, the music was just playing. Nevertheless, there is something called a sync license. If you're going to synchronize music to video, you have to get a special license. And in that case, I don't have a sync license. I posted the video on Facebook. Facebook's algorithm caught the YMCA song by the Village People playing in the background and then muted it, muted that part of my video so that people who watched it had no idea what exactly they were watching, uh, I guess until they saw the YMCA dance. And I, I love this example for a couple of reasons. One, the village people are using the trademark of the YMCA in the name of their song, and that doesn't seem to be a problem. But then when I f go to the actual YMCA and film people who are lawfully doing a dance under their public performance right license, and I just put it on YouTube to show my my uh, you know my my cousins how much fun we're having at the YMCA of the Rockies. Facebook gets involved and turns it off, and that just seemed absurd to me. Uh, I'm not saying that the the. They're not within their rights to do that. They probably are. But this, to me, is sort of an indication that these institutions are interacting in ways that are really stressing and challenging the conceptual foundations of them. And when you have you know counterintuitive results like that, um, where I can't go to the YMCA, listen to the song YMCA, and put it online, that that just that just tells me that we've we've got a problem somewhere. And I honestly don't know where it is. Um, I, I don't really have strong opinions on this, other than that the solution is not. And this is kind of my opinion about basically everything, which is why nobody likes to talk politics with me. But I think almost all these situations are much more complicated and nuanced than the people on either side of them are willing to admit. I think both sides really have a point here, and I don't know where it's heading. It, the uh, Senator Tillis, I think, is, and uh, Senator Coons are the two main senators that are doing this. Uh, so it's a bipartisan uh, effort. Uh, you know, Senator Tillis is a Republican. Uh, Chris Coons is a Democrat. The, the continual theme I hear from these is that there needs to be some sort of reasonable remedy for, for copyright holders. And the suggestion I've heard made several times is to go with the CASE Act, which is basically a sort of federal administrative small claims court for copyright uh, owners to try to vindicate their claims and get damages. I don't know how effective that's going to be. I think um, um, the average infringer is, is, you know, to the extent you even find that person, probably doesn't have any meaningful assets to collect. Uh, I think what's going to happen is you're going to have administrative judges who are reluctant to award a $2,000 judgment against some 12-year-old kid that's been pirating music online. Or, or you're going to have a lot of people, infringers who are overseas and we just don't have any jurisdiction over them. So I, I, I do like the CASE Act. I'll talk about it at some point. I think it maybe can uh, provide some answers. But I, I do think the situation is more complicated than that. And that's only only a part of the solution. I like anybody else. I've been frustrated by you know posting a, a video of my kids at the zoo or something and there happens to be some song playing in the background the ai picks it up and shuts it off and it's it's ultimately harmless but but it is annoying and it sort of gives people this anti-artist mindset that there's a bunch of greedy record labels out there you know turning off all this music i mean that you know that that's one perspective i think what's probably more accurate is that ai is finding stuff and there aren't humans making decisions on this because there's too much content for humans to search and so we have to turn it over to these ais and algorithms which 
Uh, I just did a talk on this for AIPLA. One of the biggest flaws of an AI is that it doesn't have the the capacity for exercising judgment. It doesn't have the capacity to consider the greater context and say, this isn't really the kind of thing that we care about. All it knows is that it found the music, and so it's shutting it off. So this is one of the limitations of AI that, that's going to be difficult to overcome, and, and it's just going to make this problem difficult to solve. So I, th- I, think, I think the artists perhaps uh, overestimate what AI can do, and I think the uh, platform perhaps um, underestimate the damage that is done to artists by infringement um, on their sites. So that's really all I wanted to say about it. Just thought I'd kind of go over the issues there and uh, and talk through that. So so next time, I don't know what we're going to do exactly, but I do know that Kirk has sent me uh, some audio of him. He watched the first season of Picard, so we may actually do some, uh, some more in-depth discussion of Star Trek, something we have very rarely done on this show. Anyway, I'll probably get CBS All Access, and uh, I'll watch that, and I'll, I'll share my thoughts as well. So... Uh, you can expect us to talk about Picard at, at some point um, in the next month or two. I just don't know exactly when. Uh, so on that note, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, I also have a couple other ideas for uh, music episodes, but I'm trying to space them out between other things so I don't overwhelm you with music stuff. But if you have ideas for episodes, let us know uh, on Twitter, LGGpod. You can email us, lggpodcast at gmail.com. Get in touch with us. Let us know your thoughts. And uh, you know, tell your friends if you like the podcast, especially you folks, uh, new people listening in. Whoever's in Clayton, Mississippi, we don't have a good footprint in the South outside of basically Texas and uh, a couple of people in Florida. So, uh, well, I guess Atlanta now, too. Atlanta's on board. So, But Tennessee, man. Tennessee, where are you? I'm talking about music. Nashville is like songwriting central. So we need some more listeners from Tennessee. So call your friends in Tennessee and tell them to tune in. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 